from Local 12 Sports. It's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome to the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Boring. Each and every week, we talk about sports topics of local interest, occasionally a national topic or two. We're closing in on our gambling segment with college football and the NFL about to begin. And part of the podcast where you can ask me a question on any topic, go to the Twitterverse if it's still alive. I have no idea if it is. Uh, but hit us, hashtag ask me anything. Yeah, X. I'm sorry. Yeah, X. X. I forgot about the X. Uh, it's still Twitter to me. It'll always be Twitter to me, Rick Roaring. Um, that's all I can tell you. Uh, my that's why we love you. You're old alive school. I don't understand I know, that. Hey, my, my tweet deck is still living. Mine's in shambles. I've actually got – so the, the computer right here that I'm recording on – TweetDeck works. It's still the old format, but on my other computer that I normally use over to my right for like my daily usage, it TweetDeck doesn't work anymore. So like I have to go back and forth between. It's a disaster. Yeah, well, you know, the the Bengals media that I cover with, um, Jay Morrison to my right, his TweetDeck does not work. Paul Daner Jr. to his right, his TweetDeck, he's his TweetDeck works. A couple other people around their TweetDeck does. I don't I don't know what's going on. I don't know how we're still living on tweet deck at the moment but i somehow am just give me x deck and i'll be fine you know i'm good with that i just want to pay for it that's right all right well let's jump into our show here today we'll start with the reds as we typically do uh the reds are 63 and 59 as we sit here on thursday morning the reds and the cubs are both two and a half games back of the brewers in the nl central and are tied with the marlins for third and for the third wild card spot in the national league Skinny, the big news for the Reds this week was that on Wednesday, they designated Luke Weaver for assignment, and Hunter Green is expected to take his place in the rotation when he gets the start on Sunday against the Blue Jays. So we'll start with that. How big of an impact do you think Hunter Green can make for this team with just under 40 games to go once he gets back? Yeah, I mean, that's roughly maybe eight starts, depending on how it, it, it all shakes down for Hunter Green. And do you want eight starts of Hunter Green or eight more starts of Luke Weaver? It's it's a pretty simple process. Do I want to be in ball games or do I not want to be in ball games? I mean, I, I think it's a significant difference, especially if Ashcraft continues to pitch the way he has. Um, Andrew Abbott's kind of settled into he's ERA still under three, but still giving you pretty good starts. Williamson's pitched really well. And so now we're down to the fifth spot that maybe Nick Lodolo eventually gets at the end of the month. So I, I do think it's significant. I mean, again, eight starts of Hunter Green versus eight starts of Luke Weaver. That has to be a win for you, correct? Well, without question. And I think that's the key to it is to remember that he's replacing Luke Weaver. So when you look at it, you say, well, he's only going to be able to impact seven or eight games the rest of the, the season. That's true. But it's also seven or eight games that you don't have Luke Weaver pitching now. And that is a huge difference, Skinny. If you look at Luke Weaver, not only has he pitched the Reds out of some games, but also in his three starts this month in August, he is not the farthest that he's made it into a game is four and a third innings. He's not just stinking, he's taxing the bullpen like crazy. He's pitched 97 innings this year and 21 starts. He's averaging 4.6 innings per start. That's that's terrible. He is taxing the bullpen like crazy. If for no other reason than that, it is huge to get Hunter Green back and get rid of Luke Weaver. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to fool ourselves that Hunter Green's pitching into the seventh and eighth inning of ball games. But if you can get a Hunter Green start, a good Hunter Green start, that's at least six innings. And to your point, that starts to add up after a while. I mean, instead of you know asking the bullpen to pitch you know forty to forty-five innings and in Luke Weaver starts. Maybe you're asking the bullpen down the stretch to pitch 25 to 30 innings and Hunter Green starts. 
and maybe Hunter Green leaves with a two-run lead as opposed to leaving a run down and the offense rallying to, to bail out Luke Weaver's you know record overall when he starts. So I, I do think it's a significant difference, especially when you are in a tight race, both for the wild card and for the for the central division. I think it gives you a huge boost. Yeah, so like I said, they're two and a half games out right now in the National League Central behind the Brewers. They're tied with the Cubs. Do you see the Reds as a threat to win the NL Central still? Because I, I've been listening to some sports talk recently, reading some of the comments on social media stuff, and it seems like we've entered that phase where everybody's already back into, well, at least the Bengals here are here. At least they got us to football season and pack it up. Let's go home. Uh, am I crazy or is that kind of ludicrous to be saying at this point when they're just two and a half games back? Yeah, I, I mean, some people have already stuck a fork in them, and I don't understand that philosophy, that thought process. I know there's been some gut punch losses here. Um, you know, the one we did after the podcast last week, that last Wednesday game against Miami, where they blew the the, the three run lead late. Um, you know, the 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 one on Saturday against the Pir- or the first game of Sunday, excuse me, against the Pirates when they gave up the late three run home run to lose four to two. You know, getting shut out by Cleveland. Um, and, and listen, the schedule here in the next week is going to get tough, obviously, with the Blue Jays and then and then the Dodgers. But, you know, I, I don't see, see it being over uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I, I Again, I think it's 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 a team that kind of regressed to the mean. And now kind of if, when things have all settled, you're still very much in the race, getting arguably your best starting pitcher back and potentially getting another key starting pitcher back by the end of the month. And then possibly getting Jake Fairley back here at some point to add to the lineup. So I I. It's not like it's not like suddenly five starters have gone on the DL and you're like, well, now they're awful and they got to call up this guy and that guy. Listen, I don't need to see much more of Henry Ramos. And and honestly, I've already made my case about Stuart Fairchild. God love him for hitting a home run um, in, in Wednesday night's game. But, you know, overall, this team, it's a young group, but it's still it's a good group. I mean, you're not asking them to go something silly here over the final 40 games. My question is, could you go 24 and 16? Is that enough? And I think they're capable of that. And I think it would be enough. Yeah, I think the reason people have gotten so down on this team is because they've certainly struggled since the All-Star break. And you see them lose like eight out of nine games through that one stretch. And uh, they're four and 10 in the month of August, right? And I understand that. It's not great. They're regressing. I mean, all of that stuff. But Skinny, the fact that they're only two and a half games back, despite that stuff, makes me think, They've been given an incredible gift. No one in this this uh, division can run away with it. It's very obvious at this point because the Reds couldn't have been any worse over the last two or three weeks. And yet they're still right here. They're in the wild. They're tied for a wild card spot right now. If the season were to end today, they'd have to have a playoff for that, I, I guess. And they're just two and a half games back, which is one week of good baseball from the Reds and the, and the Brewers just kind of doing what they've been doing ever since the all-star break. And you're right back in this thing. So uh, I, I just don't really understand that sentiment right now. And I think I've been as negative on this team and have, has have had as low of expectations for this team as anyone in the city all year. I mean, I just, I, I realize that they are a young team that they were probably going to hit some type of wall a little bit later in the season. And that has happened. And yet they're still right there in the thick of things. I, I just don't understand the negative vibes right now around this ball club. Yeah, I, I think the biggest part is you're not asking this team to do anything spectacular over the final 40. It's not like you got to go 30 and 10 and make up eight games. You're right. Two and a half games is, is maybe two series worth for both the Reds and the Brewers. It's you winning two series and the Brewers going one in five. Are the Brewers capable of going one in five in a stretch? They sure are. And so, Again, I, I I feel pretty good about, about the stretch run. It, it, it's been, again, 
there have been some real gut punch losses where you're like, man, that just feels like that's it. And it feels like the life is draining out of this team. I'll be honest with you. The shutout loss to the Guardians, it gave me a little vibe of, oh, man, maybe this is really slipping away. And then they come back and win the next night in pretty impressive fashion. You get the Hunter Green news and you look up, as you mentioned, as we do this podcast, and you're tied in the wild card and you're only two and a half out in the central. Things could be a whole lot worse if they were playing in a better division. Absolutely. Every time I get to one of those moments where it's like, oh, yeah, look, the Reds are kind of done. Look at this. Oh, they're going to be three and a half, four and a half, five and a half games back after this one. And then the Brewers go out and they lose seven to one. You know, it's like nobody in this division wants to win it. And the Reds, we've seen this already this year. Yes, they're struggling right now. But with these young guys and hopefully with a couple of the pitchers back that they're getting in Green and Lodolo, they have the ability to go on those streaks where they do get hot, where they do pile up a bunch of runs in a few games back to back like that. And I don't think that's changing. I do think the young guys are maybe tiring out or maybe struggling a little bit more as there's more tape on them and and scouting reports and things like that. But I do still think they're very talented, that they're going to be great players down the line for this team, and they're figuring it out as we go here in this rookie year. So I don't think they're like done and they're going to disappear the rest of the season. I think they're going to be up and down, and we've seen a lot of their down over the last few weeks. I think it's probably likely that there's a little upswing coming at some point over the next month. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And, and um you know, and maybe it's a good thing that some of these guys don't know what they don't know. Maybe they don't understand what the pressure of a of a, of a playoff race is. Um, you know, maybe that's a good thing for this group that they're just going to go out and play. I, I will say it, 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 it has felt like for maybe the last few weeks that, that this team has kind of changed its persona a little bit where it wasn't running quite as much. It wasn't uh, stealing quite as much. It wasn't quite as aggressive. And maybe some of that is they weren't getting on base very much. I mean, they were really only scoring when they'd hit a home run. It felt like there was a couple of games where it was three runs on three solo home runs. You know, maybe if you can get a little bit better on base stuff going on here, uh, maybe this team gets back to being aggressive. Cause I think that's what really fueled everything for this club was when they were super aggressive, when McLean came up and Ellie came up and they're running like crazy men. Um, and listen, I, I know, you know, the other night Ellie gets thrown out at second base, tagging it up. I had no problem with it. It's what he is. It's what they are. It took a really good throw to get him. Um, and it did kind of take him out of an inning. I understand that, but I'm going to live with that. I think that's what this team does best is it puts pressure on defenses and it needs to get back to doing that, but it also needs to get back on base more to be able to do that. I'm glad you brought that up because I see all these comments after something like that happens and Ellie needs to stop. This is getting ridiculous. Just, just knock it off. Enough's enough. Really? Like that, that guy is special. He is a one of one. He is unlike anything we've really seen in major league baseball. And he's a big reason why, the Reds were in first place at one point this season when he first came up and he was doing all of these types of things. Sometimes it's going to make him look silly or make the team, uh, you know, run the team out of an inning earlier than they should have. But that's what you take with a player like that who's capable of making those types of plays. And I also think it's the only way that this team makes another run and gets back on track is playing that style of baseball, getting Ellie and McLean and Friedel and those guys running around the bases and making, I mean, TJ Friedel. We got he was unbelievable Wednesday night. That guy has been a gamer all year long. I just love the way he plays defensively, the effort, the hustle on the base pass, and with his bat, he can do some things. Yeah, I, I'd really like to see the one thing I would like to see is just leave him in the lineup. I mean, I, I get, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, the potential platoon splits and all those things, but listen, he puts the ball in play enough. He's such a good bunter that even against lefties, can he bunch it for a hit, you know, in, in a game? I, I just think he just provides so much that I think I'm leaving him in the lineup regardless. I mean, you want to platoon Benson and whoever else you want to and get Fairchild in there against some lefties, that that's fine. But I'd leave Friedel alone at the moment. 
I'm with you. Skinny, anything else on the Reds before we switch over to the Bengals? No, I just like I said, I it's it's funny to to feel to hear all the hand wringing and the and the stick of fork in them, and that's not even close to the case. And I don't know why people are in that in that vein. I really don't. Yeah, it's weird. Two weeks ago, people were mad at us for saying we were in that vein too much as we were saying, oh, you know, get ready. It's a young team, might regress the mean here. And then a week later, everybody else is like, this team is done. They're finished. They stink. It's like, well, hold on. Hold on a second, guys. Let's not go that far. That's a little overboard even for us. All right, let's switch gears here. Let's switch gears here to the Bengal side of things. Um, We'll start with the Joe Mixon trial. It's been going on this week. He was on trial for aggravated menacing after a road rage incident. He was alleged to have pointed a gun at a woman. They shouted some things at each other, allegedly. We just found out seconds before starting this podcast that he was found not guilty. What do you make of this whole Joe Mixon trial and what happens now for he and the Bengals? Not over yet. He's also got the civil suit against him from the, the folks in the Anderson Township incident. So that's still still hanging out there. Um, you know, it was it was certainly longer than what everybody thought it was going to be. I think initially everybody thought it was a quick one day thing and that's all he would miss i mean he missed all of this week of practice and while in the surface it's not a big deal it's really not i know some people want to make a big deal of it um you know from that regard it's not but um you know at the end of the day he's found not guilty you can believe what you want to believe um i i'm not even going to say what i want to believe or what i believe in this case i just know what the court found and what the judge found she found him not guilty um I, you know i don't think any more of joe mixon than, than I ever did. Uh, he's just a football player who's, who's got some issues and I know Bengals fans love him and that's, that's your prerogative to love him all you want. Um, but as far as the football side of things goes, um, you know, he's still back in the fold, but I will remind people that the NFL can still come in and suspend him. It, 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 there's no court of law with the NFL. They, they if they think that, that his conduct is outside the, the conduct policy, they can certainly hand him a, a suspension. I, 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 you know, I truly thought, that if he was found not guilty, that probably wouldn't take place depending on what happens with the civil suit eventually. Um, and I still think that way. I think if he was found guilty, um, I do think that the NFL would have suspended him for uh, you know a handful of games, whatever that might be, two, three, or four. So I think in that regard, um, if you're if you're expecting Joe Mixon or, or, or hoping Joe Mixon wouldn't miss any time, I think you're probably going to be happy as a Bengals fan. I don't think he's going to miss time. And again, from a practice perspective, would it be nice to have him in the fold and have all your players there? It sure would. Um, but I don't think it's a big deal that he missed two practices in a week, especially when they have no contact. Um, and he's not going to play in the Friday game against Atlanta. Wasn't going to play in the Friday game against Atlanta anyway. So really, what did he really miss? Yeah, the it's kind of been a weird thing to follow this because, like you said, there's a lot of people who are con- concerned and focused on Will Joe Mixon miss time? Will he be suspended? That that type of thing in the football aspect of it. And I hear a lot of people being like, ah, it's not really that big of a deal. Even if he was guilty, he's not going to jail or anything. It's just going to be a, a situation where he probably has a fine. And I don't know, do community service or what you do to get out of that. But um, it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And I'm, I, I get that, I guess. But I'm also wondering, it seems like a lot of people are overlooking how absurd it is for Joe Mixon to allegedly be pointing a gun out the car window it wasn't this like the same weekend as they played the Bills in the playoffs too? Isn't that when this happened? It was the same day. It was the same. It was the same. It was the same day they were leaving to go play Buffalo. Right. So it was on the I way mean, to the stadium. Isn't that just a little bit absurd and crazy to begin with? And it also makes me wonder if the NFL doesn't look at that because if you watched, if you, if you followed the trial at all, all, it seemed like the defense, Mixon's attorney, was focused way more on proving that the woman was not scared. 
Correct. To avoid the menacing, the aggravated menacing charge and not about denying that Mixon did wave a gun out the window and, and say he might cap her or whatever he said. So, I mean, it, this is, yeah, I, I think, the, I think the biggest issue Rick was they'd never proved there was a gun at all. That, I think that's the biggest problem here. They never showed it. I, I honestly thought they would have had some kind of video of at least something that looked like a gun or him pointing something out a window. And they really didn't. I mean, the prosecution really didn't have a very strong case here. Uh, you know, again, you can think what you want. I know what I think, whether he did it or not. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, but at the end of the day, the prosecution really had a weak case. Uh, you know, the defense defense attorneys are scumbags for the most part. And, you know, them pointing the finger at the woman to me is completely absurd. But they did a much better job in proving their case. And, uh, you know, I followed pretty intently. So did a couple other beat writer friends. And we were in a text chain back and forth. And as soon as they wrapped up closing arguments, the prosecutor had a good closing argument, mind you. But at the end of the closing arguments, I, I literally said they're not going to find him guilty. And they didn't. Right. And I, and I agreed with that from everything I had seen. It seemed like, well, his his side is definitely winning this. Um, but he had gone so long in his NFL career without any rumors, at least that I had heard, at least from a public fan perspective, I think, of him acting out after he had the incident where he punched a woman at Oklahoma I think a lot of us kind of wanted to believe the idea that, okay, Joe Mixon had become a guy that, you know, made a really bad mistake, a, a terrible mistake, an unforgivable mistake, you might even think, in college. But he's moved on, he's put that past him, and he's tried to do the best he, he could since he's gotten to the NFL. Maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. But after hearing about this incident, seeing this trial, it definitely leads you to believe, or at least make you wonder, well, if that's this is really who the guy's been the whole time, right? He's just either been getting away with it or it hasn't come to public light. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair to say. And, and the Anderson Township situation doesn't doesn't help. I mean, I know he didn't pull the trigger, but it occurred at his house and may have occurred with his gun. <laughs> so, um, you know, he, he that's the other part. He's not out of the woods in that case at all because it's a civil case and not a criminal case. And civil cases, I'm not an attorney by any stretch of imagination, but they are far there's far less burden of proof to win that civil case. And, and again, I don't know if that, if he's found guilty and, and has to pay some kind of fine in that case. If again, the NFL swoops in and, and hands him a suspension. Yeah. I just, one thing I always wonder about these types of scenarios is what do you think the vibe is like among teammates inside that locker room when something like this is going on with Joe Mixon? He's, he's away from the team for practice. He's not there. Do you think the guys are like in the locker room showing each other updates on social media, like on their phones and talking about it? Do you think they, they think it's weird? Do you think they're kind of uh, gossiping behind his back a little bit or what's, what's that like? That's a good question. I, I honestly, I mean, just being in the locker room, I didn't sense any of that. Um, I didn't even sense them talking about the situation. I think for, for players, and I really mean this, they're so locked into what they have to do on a daily basis that quite frankly, even though it might be a teammate, I don't even know if they're, they have any level of care or focus on any of that kind of stuff because they're just, they, they have to be so locked into their own world. Well, and I also think it's a world in which there's a lot of your personal life is your personal life. And I'm just going to kind of, I mean, there's a lot of crazy yes. stuff, right? The yep. show ballers and things like that isn't yep. all that far off from yep. what's taking place when these guys are on the roads and they've got uh, side pieces or whatever else. So a lot of these guys are probably used to kind of being like, what you got going on? Off the field is what you got going on off the field. I just want you to show up on Sunday and do your job. And they kind of just turn the other way and don't worry about that stuff. I think that's exactly right. All right. Uh, 
another kind of off the field situation going on that just came to light last night. It's been going on for a little while, but we got some news on it last night. A judge has granted Jamar Chase's request for a temporary restraining order against an Instagram model, ordering the woman to stay at least 100 yards away from the football player and his mom. Chase claims the woman, Amber Hunter, has been harassing Chase and his mom on social media, saying that the two have a child together and that he's been abusive to her and the child. Uh, Chase says no law enforcement agency has found her to be credible, and he's asking for a restraining order to stop the harassment. Uh, Skinny, should fans be worried at all about this Jamar Chase restraining order situation? No, because it's been going on for two years, and it sounds like he's fought back. I mean, you, you know, you remember back a couple of years ago, some of the crazy stuff she was putting out there about him, and it was kind of it was kind of laughable to some degree, but then you go, well, if there's a grain of truth to this, then, then, you know, shame on him. But it sounds honestly more like uh, she's as crazy as the day is long and he's decided to, to fight back. And, you know, it, it, you look back at his rookie year, remember the drop issues and all that. I wonder if some of this stuff that came out then didn't, didn't have something to do with that, that his focus was taken away a little bit from that. And then he's decided to fight back. So yeah, I don't have really any thought on that other than, than um, you know, him fighting back, getting the restraining order maybe gives him some peace of mind too, because you know, she seems like she is just way, way out there. Yeah. And you never know exactly what's going on, especially obviously he said they had a one night stance. There was some type of contact at one point between the two. What happened since then is anybody's guess. I think a lot of times the, the abuse in these situations have a tough road and people don't want to believe them, things like that. But I'll also say it does feel more and more scary for professional athletes, I think, in these types of situations, because there is just a lot of weird stuff going on out there and a lot of weird people who have agendas and they have such access to you with social media and with Instagram direct messages and all these things where these players will just like go and hook up with people. It's like you can say, well, you should be safer than that and you should know better. But at the same time, you're very young with a ton of money and a lot of people are trying to get at you. I understand the uh, temptation. I understand how it can be tough to to navigate those waters as a 21, 22, 23, 24 year old with millions of dollars and and everybody's kind of throwing themselves at you. It's it's got to be a weird situation in general. I'm not trying to excuse anything. Who knows what's going on here, but uh, I I do think it's probably getting scarier and scarier for a lot of these young athletes because of all the access that people are given to them. No question. All right, Skinny, let's get into that was our law and order segment of the podcast. Let's get into some actual football talk with the Bengals. Uh, well, it's it's amazing because it feels silly to talk about for guys like you who are there every day, I think. It's like, oh, who really cares about the preseason games? No, you know, you're not going to see much of the starters or whatever. But I talked to uh, my father-in-law or I talked to a neighbor or whatever. And the first thing that usually comes up is, well, are the starters going to play? So ad- address that right now. Are, are we going to see more starters on Friday in Atlanta? On the defensive side, yes, because I think they want to get them a little bit of tackling in, some real live tackling. On offense, I'm leaning towards no. I asked Ted Karras if he thought he was going to play and if the offensive line was going to play, and he said, if I show up and they tell me I play, I'll play. If not, then I won't play. And so I, I, I just don't know what the benefit is for those guys, to be honest with you. I mean, you don't have your starting running back. You don't have your starting quarterback. You're not putting your three wide receivers at risk in that game. And so, honestly, what's the point you're trying to sort out really the, the, the depth of the offensive line and what better way than to give those two units, the second and third units, as many reps as possible. They gave on Friday one group the first half, one group the second half. Um, the quarterbacks are going to switch up this week where Simeon gets the first half, Browning gets the second half. I'm going to guess they're going to work behind uh, different offensive lines and they work behind the, the first time through. So I, I, 
I do think the defense is probably important to get those guys some live reps, maybe a series or two. And that, that sounds like what's going to take place just from a tackling perspective to, to get some live hitting in. But offensively, I just don't know the benefit. I know fans want to see the offensive line mesh. Offensive line ain't meshing in 10 friggin' plays, kids. Just give, give me a break on that. It, it, you know, they got plenty of stuff in camp where they can mesh, if you will. And again, that wasn't the cause of the slow start last year either. The offensive line didn't throw five interceptions and have a, a, a long snapper get hurt freakly in game one. So um, I don't buy any of that stuff. So to me, I, I – they get plenty of work in camp. It's not the work that they used to get two two decades ago when they were full contact in two a days and taking salt pills instead of water breaks. And people were tougher back then. And I'm old school and I was tougher back then too. But I, I listen, you're going to get a little bit of reps from the first team defense, but not from the first team offense. And I have no problem with it. Yeah, I'm good with all of that. I wonder on the defensive side, do you think that they do want to just get some more time for that secondary on the field together? I don't know about that. I just think, again, in general, I, you know, I think if that was the case, you would have seen Nick Scott play with Dax Hill last week. Dax was the only starter or projected starter to play, and he played three series um, uh, in the game and actually had a really good flash play on the, on the first series. I, I thought we might have seen both those guys to get them more reps together, but I truly think it's just more or less, hey, you get a chance for some live tackling. You, you know, you've, you've done that a little bit in a couple of short yardage drills. Um, that Packers practice, I'll remind people, did not include tackling to the ground. It included some contact and some physicality, but not tackling the ground. I do think that that part's important. I know they can talk about practicing it and and doing drills in practice, and, and they do those things. But I think there's something to be said to have some kind of live session and get them a couple series of live session. And, hell, maybe it's two, three and outs, and it's only six plays. That'd be a perfect world, right, where you're like, damn, defense looked really good. I, I that, that makes some sense to me. You had mentioned – trying to work out the depth on the offensive line. One thing that came to light this week is Jackson Carmen had been getting reps at right tackle. It was reported earlier this week that they flipped him back over to the left side of the line. He was working out at left tackle this week in practice. What'd you make of that? I made a lot of that. I asked Zach Taylor that on, on um, whatever it was Monday, if, if that signaled an end to the competition between Jackson Carmen and Jonah Williams. And he said, no, we're just in the early stages of that process. And no offense, Zach, I think you're full of crap. I don't believe that for an instant. I think the competition is over. I think it's been over. Um, and I think it was getting Jackson some reps at left tackle that if you're, if he's in the mix to be the swing tackle, and I'll be honest with you, he's slipping away from that in my opinion. But if you want him to be the swing tackle on game days, um, he's gotten all his reps to this point at right tackle. So now it's time to get him some reps at left tackle because on game days, if he's the tackle that's up, he needs to be able to play both and have some reps at both. So I think that's what this was. But I'll be honest with you. I'm not so sure Deontay Smith isn't moving ahead of him in the pecking order at this point. And you got Lyle Collins eventually maybe waiting in the wings if, if they keep him around, um, you know, depending on, on what they do from an injury status with him. So, uh, you know, I, I think Jackson's in real danger zone at the moment. Should fans read more into that? Uh, positively that that Jonah Williams has been playing well at right tackle or more look at it from the standpoint of Jackson Carmen is just fading fast and he's not really in the mix. Yeah, I, I think both because I, I do think Jonah, you know, for, for the people we've talked to from Frank Pollock to Brian Kelly and to Zach Taylor, they, they, they all use the word. It's been a seamless transition for him to the right side. Um, has he been perfect? No. I mean, Sam Hubbard's had his moments against him. Trey Hendrickson's had a lot of moments against Orlando Brown. I don't know if I read into anything more of, of that than those guys are just playing really well in camp at the moment. So, um, no, and I, yeah, I do think some of it is, you know, Jackson kind of slipped away from it. Um, you know, he probably had worse days in camp than, than others. And like I said, the, the thing I'm interested in is to see 
you know, is he still considered the swing tackle or is Deontay Smith moving back ahead? And then, like I said, what, what happens, you know, they just got to hold their breath that all right, one of these guys will have up on game day. We're not going to need him. And after four weeks, uh, Lyle will be back in, in, in the fold as a swing tackle. Maybe he's the swing tackle eventually. I, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting dynamic to watch play out because I mean, you only got a couple more weeks to sort this out and figure out what you're going to do at that position. And let's not forget, I mean, Deontay Smith was hardly active at all last year, and suddenly he's moving up the the, the, the chart. Is that by default or because he's playing well? I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, it would seem to say something about Jackson Carmen, I would think. Hey, you mentioned Orlando Brown. I actually got a specific question on Twitter that wanted to know, like, hey, we got Orlando Brown. Haven't really heard much about him at all from training camp about how he looks. And I understand from your guys' perspective, there's not a ton to read into with offensive line play during training camp, but what are, what have been your thoughts on seeing Orlando Brown with the team? I, Trey Hendrickson's eaten his lunch for the most part. I will say that. I mean, Trey Hendrickson's been really good. Now, I will say, while you have some full speed drills in camp, you know, I'm, linemen, there's probably some things they can't do from a punch standpoint. I mean, it's your teammate. At the end of the day, there's some things you can do against other guys and will do physically that maybe you don't do your teammate, and it gives the defense a little bit of an advantage and a little bit of an edge. The other part, too, is and, – and I don't know the answer to this part of it, although we know Joe Burrow's decisiveness. You know, how much of this is you got the two backup quarterbacks back there holding the ball for maybe an extra tick too long, not getting it out as quickly as they should, that Orlando maybe is doing his job initially and making Trey go around. And Trey, by the time he gets under and around, um, the quarterback's still holding the football where Joe Burrow would have gotten it out. And I think that's hard to assess. So, I, I, listen, I know there's there's a couple of – I've heard it from a couple of people too. Boy, it sounds like he's not having a very good camp and maybe he's not. I think offensive line play is really hard to assess in camp, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I just know what track record is. I know what the back of his baseball card, if you will, says four straight pro bowls. And then I got the flip side of, well, Kansas city didn't bring him back for a reason. That's monetary. That's not performance related. That's more monetary related. So um, I'll be worried if I see it in regular season games. I don't think there's any reason to worry right this moment about Orlando Brown. Yeah, and I don't even think this person saw it from a, a negative standpoint. I think it was just, hey, there's so much made of him coming here, and then since he's been in, in camp, you haven't heard a whole lot about how he actually looks. Yeah. And they just want an update. And I, I, like I said, I think that, and I think that's because it's just impossible to assess for us offensive line play in camp. You know, there's no yeah. tackling. So was that hole the running back went through? Was that a good hole, and did he get through it, or was the play whistle dead because it was whistle dead? I mean, yeah. you don't know. Right. And you also don't have uh, officials call like because half of offensive line play is Correct. are you getting called for holds and things like that and put yourself right. in right. Uh, bad down and distance situations. So uh, you don't see a lot of that necessarily either. Another guy that I wanted to ask you about is we talked about running backs last week. And I said, hey, I'm really excited to see Chase Brown in this first preseason game. And we got to see some Chase Brown. I liked some of the things we saw a little bit, but we also got a lot more Chris Evans than I think I was expecting. And Chris Evans made some plays in that game. Sounds like he's made some plays here in camp of late as well. Is Chris Evans getting noticed at all right now, or do you think he's just kind of biding time until some of the other guys get healthy? Yeah, I, I think he's probably moved up the chart ahead of Travion Williams at the moment just because Travion hasn't gotten a chance to practice because of the injury for a couple of weeks. And, you know, the, the, the clock kind of is, is ticking out on, on Travion too here. Um, I still think it's a matter. Do you keep four backs or do you keep three? And, you know, I could flip a coin at the moment to tell you which one of the odd men are, are out if they keep three, if it's Chris Evans or, or, or Travion Williams. And then, you know, they go to the practice squad and as the season goes along, like they did last year, they kind of toggled them back and forth. You know, Chris Evans, I think the last play he had in the regular season last year was a touchdown catch against the chiefs in the regular season. Then you never saw him again. Travion Williams came up 
for special teams duty primarily. <laughs> and Chris Evans was was put to the back of the bus. And then Travion, you know, had some nice garbage time runs against Buffalo in that playoff win. Um, and it felt like, okay, Travion's moved ahead of him in the pecking order. But, um, you know, Chris is taking advantage of some opportunity here. Needs another good game. Um, he needs to show up in pass blocking again, which has been kind of a, a key point of, you know, who's going to be the third down back. And I think they were excited to see what Travion could do in that regard. He's, he's short, but he's, he's very stocky and he's you know, kind of Gio Bernard like he's fearless. So yeah, I think Chris has probably moved ahead just because he's gotten a chance and gotten the reps, Rick. Well, that was one of the things too, that he got, uh, you know, that he got a good mark for after the game. I, I think one of the coaches made, made reference to some pass blocking that he did in the, the preseason game. Right. So that, I mean, that's one thing from Chris Evans is he has, it's all about uh, the the being able to catch a pass and make a guy miss and run upfield, that type of thing. It's never been about the toughness and the being willing to block and those types of things. So maybe he's showing a little bit well, more it, the biggest thing I, Yeah, the biggest negative about him has been, um, and I've heard a couple of coaches in, in camp mention this in a positive, like Frank Pollock did it in a short yard drill, is Chris doesn't doesn't follow what is called his tracks as well as he should. That if the play is designed to go here, he tries to bounce it too often. And I, I heard Frank Pollock after Chris had a run in camp, it was a very short run, but he said, way to follow your tracks. And I think that was a sign. And don't forget, Frank's also the run game coordinator. So he's paying attention to that kind of stuff too. So maybe that's a good sign. Now, you know, Chris got tackled for a loss the other night on a handoff, and it wasn't a play he bounced. It was a play that he had no chance. He got swallowed up whole on an end run. Um, so for the most part, I, I thought he had some positive plays in the run game too. Um, so did Chase Brown. Chase Brown made a couple of third and one conversions, if you remember, um, with a one-yard gain and a two-yard gain. They don't show up as big-time plays, but they were two third and short conversions, which I think is a is a positive for him. And you mentioned he turned that little short dump pass into a 21-yard gain, showed some elusiveness in the open field. So I thought he showed up in a nice way. Yeah, I, I was happy with both of those running backs. And I was really excited about Chase Brown going in. I didn't think Chris Evans would get much of an opportunity, to be honest. And I guess I should have thought that giving the injury situation right now at running back, but he seemed to be more of a, a featured back and in the mix early than I expected in that game. And I thought he did pretty well. So I was just curious about that. What other training camp notes would you. And that, that'll happen. Yeah. I think that'll happen again on Friday, Rick. I mean, they got four because Mixon's not going to play um, trial or no trial. He wasn't going to play anyway. Um, Travion's still hurt. I mean, you only have four backs on the roster. Two of the other guys are undrafted rookies that, you know, you're looking to probably stash one of them on the practice squad. They're not going to get a whole lot of run until, that third and final preseason game. So I think you'll see a lot of Chase Brown and Chris Evans again, probably either rotating series or rotating in and out, you know, not every snap, but certainly in a rotational situation until maybe the, the fourth quarter. So I think you'll get a big dose of both those guys again. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, any other training camp notes that you had? Yeah. I, I, you know, the, the more I watch these backup quarterbacks, the more I have to wonder aloud is, is really is the third is the backup quarterback on this roster at the moment. That, that's the part that's hard for me to gather my head around because the flip side of that is, do you want to bring in somebody this late to be the backup quarterback? Now, maybe in a perfect world, Brandon Allen gets cut in San Francisco because they've got four guys and the Bengals can go back and scoop him up and, and plug him back in as the backup. But at the moment, neither one of these guys have distinguished themselves. And, and you know, here comes really, I think the last best chance to do that uh, in this Atlanta game of, well, one of them needs to step forward. I, I'd hate to see some. Here's what I'd hate to see is one of these two guys win the job by default. And that feels like what we're trending to is, well, he didn't suck as much as him. So that's the backup. And, you know, you hope, and that's the hope is you don't need either one of them. Right. I mean, in a perfect world, Joe Burrow plays all 17 games or honestly plays 16 games and you've clinched the one seed by the final game and 
he doesn't have to play in that game either. So, um, you know, it, it's never going to be a good situation of a backup to Joe Burrow just based on what they're going to pay that backup if that guy has to play a lot of games. But I don't have a lot of confidence in either one of these guys at the moment because they just haven't shown much at all. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one. And I think most of Cincinnati is just crossing their fingers, saying their prayers, and hoping that we don't have to think about backup quarterbacks at all this season, quite honestly. All yeah, right, exactly. let's move on. Let's move on to uh, college basketball. We got a quick college basketball segment here because two of our local teams went over internationally, played some games, some exhibition games, and uh, Xavier was two and zero in the Bahamas. NKU went two and zero in Italy. Xavier also added a new player that we'll talk about in a second. Let's start with the Musketeers. They beat University of Victoria out of Canada, eighty to sixty eight. Desmond Claude had 21 points. Quincy Oliveri had 18. Freshman Trey Green had 13. And, and Davion McKnight, the transfer from Western Kentucky, had 12 in that game. And then uh, beat Raw Talent Elite, an all-star team of sorts out of the Bahamas. That was just absolutely sure. dreadful. 123 to 58. Sure. Yeah, when you hear the score, yeah, sure. Yeah, they were elite. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, Paul Paul Fritchner on my Xavier podcast was calling them uh, very raw, no talent elite. Uh, so yeah, Quincy exactly. Oliveri had 23 points in that game. Desmond Claude had 22. Reed Ducharme had 17. Uh, Kashi Enza had 15. And Gr- uh, Trey Green had 12 in that one. So uh, a lot of production there from the freshman for Xavier. Skinny, I- I'm guessing you probably didn't watch a lot of these exhibition games in the Bahamas, but it, looking at the box scores, what stood out to you? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, honestly, I, the fact that could Desmond Claude become a 16 to 18 point per game scorer, or is this just kind of the product of there was no Zach Fremantle, the level of talent you were playing against? I, I think it's a good sign that he played as well as he did though offensively. Can can he? I don't want to say can he be a Sule Boom because that's probably not fair, but can he be I've, a mid-teens to 17 point per game guy? I've got a different name for you that I think he's going to try to replace this year and fit very seamlessly into the offense in this role. Colby Jones. They've okay. moved him to the wing. He's more of like that small forward. Now, heck, he was even playing the four at a few times when they went to small ball lineups. And they're putting him in a lot of the same positions in the offense that they put Colby Jones in last year. I don't think he's as good of a shooter as Colby was last season, but I think he's very similar to where Colby was, you know, maybe going into a sophomore year at Xavier and Colby got better as he went, but as a driver and with his handle and his athletic ability, I think he's a better ball handler. I think he's very similar athletically and size wise to Colby. I, I, I don't know that he's going to be as good as Colby Jones was last year. Cause mind you, Colby Jones just got drafted and got a guaranteed contract from the Kings. So he was a very good player and, and he really carried Xavier in a lot of ways last year. I think Desmond Claude can do a lot of similar things. And this was a great start for him to show that he has taken that sort of alpha role on as, as I want to be the go-to guy. And, and he looked the part certainly in the bombs. Yeah. I think I told you after, after that first game they played and I was looking at the box score, I totally forgot about Davion McKnight. I mean, he's a legit nice player. Well, I was really impressed with him because it's nice to put up numbers, but you score that much on a team like Western Kentucky, who really did not have a good year at all and got their coach fired. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, great. He scores a lot, but does he contribute to winning? Does he do winning things? And I was really impressed with how he ran the team as a point guard. Second game, he had 10 assists, two turnovers. You know, the the first game, he was really running the offense against a legit team. University of Victoria obviously wasn't as talented as Xavier. Xavier probably should have won by more than they did, but they were in the final four four last year in Canada. They were a one seed in their tournament. Like they are a legit program. That's 
competitive every single year in their end of the year tournament. So uh, yeah, I think, I think that was a legit competition, legit competition. And Davion McKnight against their defense was really comfortable, not only playing fast the way Sean Miller now wants to play in the offense, but getting Xavier into their offense, knowing when to play fast and push the pace, but also when to probe the defense, pull it back out, get into your offense and run some things and set up your teammates. So yeah, I was really impressed. Oh, defensively too. He was great defensively. There's a guy for uh, University of Victoria named Diego Garcia. that can't, He averaged 25 points a game last year, can really shoot the ball, a fun player to watch. And, and McKnight was kind of tasked with guarding him throughout that game. He got I think 25 in that game, but he took 23 shots to do it. And McKnight did a pretty good job yeah. against him. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a good game to watch for, for McKnight. I thought. So then my last question to you would be about it is, is how much, how much do they need Zach Fremantle back, especially offensively? I think they definitely do. The front court is behind the backcourt without question. They brought in the new guys. You had Abu Usman from North Texas. You had Logan Duncombe from Indiana, both of those guys had a few moments, but quite honestly, they didn't stand out against lower level competition here. So I think a lot of fans are looking at it saying, what's that mean for Big East play? And that's not to say these guys can't play or they, they can't contribute. But from an offensive standpoint, especially, you're going to need that firepower from Zach Fremantle in the front court, I think. Now, we can talk about some other news because they did just add another piece. They they went out and got we talked about the Lithuanian transfer they had added Gitas to Meksha a couple weeks ago. He was a transfer. He might only have one year of eligibility. They also went out and just got a freshman from Serbia, 6'9", 6'10"-ish guy, face-up player, Lazar Djokovic, who I, it's hard to tell where he would rank if he was a, a prospect in the United States, but skinny at his size with his skill set and some athleticism to go with it. I mean, he really tore it up in the FIBA U19 World Cup, which – uh, if, if you followed all this year, USA did not win. They finished uh, third or fourth in that event. Right. So the legit competition, he tore it up, looked really good. I, I think it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't be a top 100 prospect if you were over here in the United States playing high school ball, entering college. So I think to find a guy like that this late in the process, in August, right before you start your season, a guy that looks like he might be able to contribute and give you a little bit more firepower on offense, I think it's possible this freshman plays right away for Xavier and, and gets in the mix early on. Yeah, so then you have, what, four legit – if he's a legit scorer, um, you got maybe four legit scores where McKnight can score, Fremantle can certainly score, um, Desmond Claude can score, or maybe this kid can score, and then whatever your fifth guy is well, and whatever your bench becomes at that point. Well, I'll say Quincy Oliveri looked great too. The transfer from Rice, he can really and, yeah, shoot yeah. it from the outside. Yeah. He had uh, tw- 23 points in that second game and led them. Now, again, the competition was horrible in the second game, but open threes are open threes. If you're making threes at a high clip, that, that goes a long way regardless of who the competition was, and, and he did that in both games. So I think Quincy Oliveri will definitely be in the starting lineup because they need his shooting. Um, and and like you said, figuring out the scoring in the front court from there will be a big priority as we get closer to the season. So let's go over to NKU. They were 2-0 in Italy. They beat Pro Camp Selection 96-55. to Marquez Work had 19 points. Cade Meyer, the transfer from Green Bay, big man, had 18 points. Trey Robinson with 14. Big man, uh, Kean. Tijere from Marquette finished with 10 in that game, and LJ Wells, the sophomore, had 10. And then uh, their next game, the very next day, they played Tuscan Select. They beat them 88-68. to Marquez Work once again led the way with 21 points. Sam Vinson had 18. Hubie Pavorius had 12. And Cade Meyer once again came through with 9 points and 10 rebounds. The Norse will uh, – we also got a little bit of news. Norse will be going to Washington the first week of the season on November 9th. 
that'll be probably their second game because I think they'll probably play on Monday or Tuesday that week, and that'll be a Thursday game, I believe. So big, big uh, bye game for them to play to start the season. That'll be exciting. But any thoughts there when you saw the box scores from Italy for NKU? Yeah, I, I got to ask a question. Though. So, so you go to Pullman one year and then go to Seattle, and then what, what's the connection there to go to, to to Washington State to play games? I think no one else wants to go to the state of Washington to play games. So they say yes to NKU and we accept their money. I think that's how that works. Yeah. Yeah, I know that was the case with Pullman. Nobody wants to go to Pullman. Yeah. And it's always hard, you know, these teams from, from overseas who you're playing. I mean, who's, who's Tuscan's best player, Giuseppe Palmero, the the pasta maker. I mean, honestly, those those things are so hard to to figure out. I don't know. Those guys are any good. His ravioli was incredible though. (laughs) I bet it was. Um, I know for the players, that's got to be kind of a cool trip, though, for sure. I mean, you're playing a little ball, you're with your guys um, in, a, in another country, you get a chance to, 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 to see that culture. I think that's pretty cool. The one thing I think that, that seems interesting just off the boxes, Rick, is that the big guys did some scoring. And that's where I look and go, okay, is that the product of who you were playing? I mean, you matched up with some 6'6 pizza delivery guy, or you matched up against a, a legit big that you did some things against. And the one thing I will say, though, to that, there's not a lot of legit bigs inside the Horizon League either, so uh, maybe this is a good sign that you got a chance to get some production from from some bigs. And not a ton of production, but if you can get, you know, 16 combined from your five spot, my lord, that's I think that's a big win for this team. Well, and skinny, and Chris Brandon was a great defensive player and rebounder for NKU the last two years. So it's not like like they didn't have a, a dynamic player at the center spot. But from an offensive standpoint, I mean, he didn't even look at the rim. They haven't had a guy who scored inside offensively. I mean, since Drew McDonald really as a go-to, like throw the ball to him and let him score. And even Drew was more of a face-up guy, a skilled guy. He wasn't a guy that punished right. at the rim, got on the glass, and, and scored physically inside. Cade Meyer from Green Bay can best do fast that. Break, and he's, hey, best fast break trail there ever was, man. Last guy down the floor, with, nobody picks him up, bang. Knocked down that trailer three from the top of the key, absolutely. But, I mean, but Cade Meyer is a guy who's already proven in the Horizon League at Green Bay that he can give you right. double-digit points, rebound, be strong inside. So I think he's going to fit in really well, and and that was my takeaway, too. Look at those box scores. You're seeing those big guys put up numbers, and it's like, wait, NKU was throwing the ball inside that much? Because normally it's just all guards playing on the perimeter and jacking threes. So uh, that was interesting for me to see as well. But so my, my question, though, it's obviously where early on in the process because this has been a guard oriented uh, team and understandably so. That's where the talent level lies. That's kind of what the league is about. That they're in. Um, will that be an adjustment, you think, for these guards or will it be a benefit? Be, I do think it'll be a little bit of adjustment. I think the big thing, especially for a guy like Marquez Ward, for like Sam Vincent, he doesn't need the ball in his hands a ton to do what he does and be effective and be efficient. Marquez Warwick though is so used to having the ball in his hands constantly that he's going to have to learn to be a little bit more efficient of how to get his shot and how to get open without the ball, right? Like you're going to have to run off screens. You're going to have to think about cutting, doing some other things to get yourself set up to score as opposed to just the ball is always in your hands. We're going to run you off ball screens and you're going to do your thing all game. He's going to have to get a little more used to that. But at the same side of, of that, more is going to be opened up for him and he's going to have more opportunities because there's going to be more pressure put on the post, more pressure put on the rim and more guys are going to go to the free throw line and get the opponent in foul trouble as a result of this. So I think it'll ultimately help him help Sam Vincent, help Trey Robinson, but there will be a little bit of adjustment, especially for Warwick. Well, but, but even with him off ball screens, at least he now knows he's got a finisher to throw it to if worse comes to worse. I mean, it doesn't always have to be him looking to create his own off of a ball screen. It's, Hey, I got a guy rolling who's, who can probably finish at the rim for me. And we'll that's look how, to that's, 
Yeah, that's going to help, I think, because it does give you that other option. It's like, okay, now they're not just going to blitz the ball screen or put two on Marquez work. Like, no, he's got a big guy that's going to dunk on you at the rim. He might lob it up too, or maybe they'll even post up and he'll dump it down. So they've, I, I think you're going to see a, a different style of offense overall from these guys just because of their personnel and, and the way they're going to play this year. All right, Skinny, let's move on to some Ask Skinny Anything. We'll start it off with a, a Bengals-related question. Who's the best interview in the Bengals locker room right now? Um, I don't know if he's the best interview. He's just the easiest one to interview. I just like interacting with him is Mike Hilton is just, I, I just enjoy talking to him. Ted Karras is a guy everybody flocks to because Ted says things and he's always willing to talk. Um, I'll tell you who to his credit has become a kind of a go-to interview. Um, and he picks his spots, but he does it more than I would say he probably needs to is Jamar Chase. Um, you know, it's it. Joe Mixon doesn't talk. Um, you know, Joe Burrow only talks at the podium, and so somebody else has to be a go-to guy. And and Jamar kind of is to his credit is settled into that role. It's not every day. And there's some days you can walk up and he's like, "Nah, get me it tomorrow," and that's fine. I I, I never have a problem with any of that. Um, I'm trying to think who else guys. I I I, I had a really good. Well, it's a really good story that I think Jay Morrison from the Pro Football Network did as well. Um, I had a great conversation with Dominique Davis, a backup defensive tackle. Um, whose journey has come from 18 months of rehab and off of a foot injury to, to trying to make it back to the NFL. And, uh, you know, those guys, I, I really I, – I enjoy talking to those off-the-wall guys. Uh, I did a story on an undrafted guard, Jackson Kirkland, and he was interesting to talk to. But for the main guys that people are asking about, there's no better dude than Mike Hilton. Mike Hilton, you just go up and talk anything to him, and he's always willing to do it. Uh, I think he sees he wants to be a media member when his career is over. And so I think he sees himself, hey, I don't want to be in the role of when nobody wants to talk you know, to me. Um, and I, Mike is just genuinely a nice human being too. I think there's, there's that side of it as, as well. Um, you know, it's not an overly tough locker room, you know, another good guy, DJ readers really thoughtful when you talk to him and he's, he's always willing to talk. And, and that's a good thing when you're, when most of your better players are willing to talk. And again, you don't have to talk all the time. You don't have to be available all the time, but when you're available more times than, than, than not, and you're willing to talk and you say something and you're, you know, you ask about a teammate and they give you a good answer about that teammate that fits the story you're doing. Uh, those are the guys that are, that are good to talk to. All right. What's the best bumper sticker you've seen? Oh my gosh. Oh man. It's funny. Cause I do look at them, but I don't really catalog them. That's funny that that question comes up because I do look intently at those a lot of times and go, Oh, that's clever, but I don't catalog them in my mind. Would you say you're a bumper sticker That's guy? What, is, what are your thoughts on bumper stickers? Are you okay with them? Well, I'm not a bumper sticker guy. No, no, no. I, 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 the only thing I've always ever had on my car was when my kid, my daughter went to Beachwood and I coached at Beachwood. I had a Beachwood magnet that, of course, was on my car when we went and played it in a away game and was no longer on my car anymore, which was a mistake on my part not to take it off. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a, I've never been a bumper sticker guy. Yeah, I know. No, I never was that guy. Are you, you're not a bumper sticker guy either, are you? No, I would I would never put a bumper sticker on my car, honestly. But the pr- part of the problem with that is yeah. I don't want anyone to know which is my car in a part. There's plenty of people who do not like me. If I'm at like a sporting event <laughs> or something covering it, I really don't want those people going to the parking sure. lot being there's Brewing's car. It's got the NKU thing on it or yep. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's, it's I, I do I find some of you the person that's got the bumper stickers all over the back. You just know that that person's been smoking weed for 40 years and, and you know, they're, they're on the hippie train because they just don't care. I mean, they just don't. I, I actually it's, do have a good know, one that I can remember. Uh, I, on my on my street, same street you actually grew up on as well. 
Um, when I was a kid, there was a low rider truck, you know, the type of thing you would see in California that uh, had across the windshield. So I guess it actually wasn't a bumper sticker. It was a windshield sticker. It said too low for a fat hoe. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty good. I would tell you this, as you pass that, that truck, you have to look inside just to see what you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, well, I was that's in like fourth good. grade probably when that like started appearing on our streets. So I would just always be calling that out as we'd be driving past and I'd be in the car with my mom. She loved that. I will say it's funny. You don't really see a lot of cars with bumper stickers on them anymore. Do you? Not as, not as many. Um, I, I did see one the other day that was in really tiny print. And it said, if you're going to ride my ass, at least pull my hair. I've, that's, I've seen that one. I have seen that one. Yeah. Maybe not in the specific car you're talking about, but I've, I've seen that one. Yes. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a, a good classic. one too. Yep. All right. I wouldn't mind having been... that one. That one on the back of my car because I can't stand tailgate. I can't stand it. I cannot. <laughs> you are not it. a tailgate guy. Break, we've we've addressed that on this podcast. I'll break. I'll break check somebody. You get. You get within a half a car length of me. You're getting break check. <laughs> I, I know that's the case. Uh, something that's in, interesting that's happened to us on this podcast is, despite me being a guy who literally only wears black V-neck T-shirts. I mean, I wear the same thing every single day, and you being a, a man in your fifties who is uh, pretty set in what you wear. People keep asking us fashion questions and telling us to give our thoughts on like what other men wear, which I think is hilarious because I, I'm like the worst person to ask, but I'll continue to give my thoughts if you want them. So this one is, what are your thoughts on adults wearing biker jackets? Skinny. <laughs> um, I think it's a good look on women. I'm not going to lie to you there. Seriously? I find it to be a good look on women. Yeah, if you were a single yeah, guy right now, you'd you'd go out with a, a lady who had a biker jacket on. Absolutely, without without fail, I, I do. I find that to be a, a good look on a woman. I'm not going to lie to you. And I guess for uh, a guy, if you're if you if you think you're tough enough to pull that off, go for it, brother. It's not it's I, not what I would wear by any stretch of the imagination. I'm I'm not a jacket guy anyway, Rick. As you know, literally the only time I wear a jacket is in the winter time when I have to wear a heavy jacket um, because it's too cold. I mean, for me, if something's if it's fall, as you know. Any other time, I'm wearing the three-quarter zip, man. It's it's. Hopefully, that never goes out of style because I got a closet full of those dudes. I I don't think it'll matter if it does. I think you're past worrying about what's in or out Probably of style right. at this point. You're just a quarter zip guy through and through. Yeah, the, the I other say, day. You know what? Back in the <laughs> back in the early 2000s, though, Rick, and I took this fashion thing from a friend of mine. The, remember when you wear the wear like the heavier pullovers that were kind of vinylish and and oh they yeah, had like a little V-neck to them. Well, I, I got a. I still got some in my closet. I don't wear them anymore. I look back and go, "Why the hell did I wear that ugly looking thing?" That's just those tedious. like golf jackets. They would give them out to like golf scrambles. And yeah, stuff, right? is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Those are bad. And the thing is, they always like pillowed out weirdly, so it always looks. Yes, like you always look another 25, 30 pounds on you. Correct. Too. Correct. That's the great part about the the, the three quarter zip is it has a little slimming effect to it. Yeah, it's it's. Good for if you got some extra junk in the trunk for sure. Uh, the one thing on the the biker jacket, I did see a guy the other day at UDF. He had um, high stakes chapter Florence, Kentucky on his Harley Davidson jacket, and I was like, "Well, that just strikes fear in the hearts of bikers everywhere." A real badass biker gang, high stakes chapter from Florence, Kentucky. <laughs> I, I wonder. I wonder where that their, their clubhouse is. <laughs> Probably a Shakey's Pub. What used to be Shakey's Pub? Wow. Yeah, it's not that any, it's not that anymore. But yes, that's a good one. They took it over. Um, <laughs> another fashion question, I guess. What does Skinny think of pants where you can zip off the legs to make them shorts? 
Yeah, no, thank no. Yeah, yeah. I, no, well, that's just you. a silly one, folks. No, no one believes in that. Yeah. Does anybody have those? I think those are like a. Um, I think those are like a hiker thing, right? Like people that go out in nature, they have those like weird khaki pants that are kind of like water resistant. And you can zip them off in case you get too hot. I feel like that's the only time I've okay. ever seen yeah. outdoors. Yeah, that's not that's not that's not a good look, and that's certainly not for me. Uh, the people that weird wear the weird like brown shoes, they're like gym shoes, but they're brown, so you know they're a hiker. Those are the type yeah, of people I know that what wear you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. That seems uh, to be every you, sports anchor now on TV wears those. <laughs> I think those, those are shoes. two different shoes that we're talking about. You're talking about the one with the white oh, soles on the bottom, you, right? Okay. Yeah. It's, I swear to God, every, it seems like every sports anchor wears those brown shoes that are that are casual yet sporty, if you will. Yep. Yep. That's a big thing. Jim Kelch and I talk about that a lot. We see that every broadcaster has them on when we go to do a game, like every one of them wears those shoes that they, they have the white sole at the bottom, but then they're like a sort of a dress gym shoe on the top. It's a weird thing. I don't, yes, yes. I don't really yeah. understand that look a whole yeah, lot. Um, if you could, if we'll, we'll wrap it up with this skinny, if you could be a contestant on any game show past or present, which one would you choose? Uh, the $100,000 pyramid. I love that show. I'm a, I used to be a Jeopardy fan. I kind of fell out of love with that for some reason. Maybe when Alex Trebek stopped hosting it, because um, there were some categories I could I could run the table on, but there were some categories where I go, boy, I have no knowledge of that whatsoever. But I always found it interesting, um, you know. I and and so I yeah, twenty thousand oh, actually the hundred thousand dollar pyramid back in the day it was the twenty five thousand dollar pyramid. Then it got a little more expensive. Um, yeah, that that that's the one Inflation. for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't yes, want exactly. Jeopardy. I don't want. Uh, who wants to be a millionaire? I don't want anything where I'm going to look stupid on national television. Give me something where it's just pure luck. I'm just playing a game. Maybe Price is Right. There's a little bit of knowledge involved there, but very minimal. Yeah. It's mostly just kind of playing the numbers game. So I, I think Price is Right would be my answer just simply from a nostalgia play. I used to always, when I was skipping school in grade school, I would always stay home and watch Price is Right. So. Yeah, um, I, my, my former radio partner, Partner's wife, Tom Gamble's wife, was on The Price is Right. Unfortunately, no she, I think she was the last one called up on a day. Um, she didn't make it up on stage, but they did get a year's supply of Turtle Wax and a John Denver uh, record set out of the deal. Well, that's why Gamble's car always looks so shiny. I was wondering. <laughs> He's got Turtle Wax forever, I guess. Yeah. Well, did, did she even get the chance to do the $1, Bob, or Drew? No, I can't. You know what? We, we actually had a watch party. This is 25 years ago. She did it. We had a so watch party. So it was Bob party. Barker then. Well, actually, she, yes. Well, she got up on stage because the station that we worked at at the time was Bob, W-B-O-B. And <sighs> we had shirts that were made up for the station, Turn Your Knob to Bob. She wore it in line, and that kind of got her noticed and got her up on, on stage. Nice. Nice. So did she get to put in a like a price on any of the things? What, what, on one item, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I think she got up there for one the night. last – she was the last contestant call of that day, got to do one bid and didn't, didn't get up on stage. But did got some lovely parting gifts chosen especially for you. If I was a contestant on Prices Right, I would either go $1 or I would go to someone who guessed something that seems to be right and go – like if they said $500, i would go 501 I love when people do yes, that. That's no just question. like the villainous move. I do too. It's right. it, 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 it it really is, but if you ever notice, that person seems to win at, at some point along the way. So that, that, it's about you at that point. I want to win the prize. It's a great strategy. But you know what's the best is when the next guy goes five oh two. That's amazing. Yes. I love that moment. Yeah. All right, that's all I got. All right, good stuff. Appreciate the questions as always. 
We will be back next week with another Pokery Podcast. For Rick Roy, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pokery edition, presented by Blake, the attorney Mason.